and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week on The Exchange, we head to the Bleep pop-up store for a live conversation with Laraji, a musician and laughter meditation practitioner. With interest in ambient and new age records on the rise, Laraji has re-emerged as one of the sound's preeminent artists. But more so than fitting into any genre or style, Laraji's music tries to stimulate your consciousness into seeing the eternal yet present nature of time and the unity of the universe. It's a practice that crosses over with his laughter meditation workshops, which use laughter to attain spiritual release and deep relaxation. In conversation with RA's Martha Pazienti Caden, we hear of Laraji discovering the spiritual power of music as a young man, the time he met Brian Eno while busking in Washington Square Park, and some of the composition techniques driving his music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Laraji is up next. coming. Um, my name is Martha. I look after the Owl podcast at Resident Advisor, but today we're here in the Bleep store and we're going to spend the next uh, 45 minutes or so getting to know Laraji. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. You're so welcome. <laughs> um, so you've come over from the US? Yes. Are you feeling kind of settled in London? Yes, I am. I feel pretty settled, well-rested, well-fed. Those are the main things. Mm-hmm. And this weekend, you're going to be doing some performances and workshops uh, across London. Would you like to tell us a bit about those? Tonight, a devotional music concert. It's a two-bill, two-act bill. I forgot who's on with me. It's at a church, and uh, the concert is in the round. I mean, we're playing at the center of the church. I don't recall the name of the church, but it's not too far from Serpentine Galleries. Then Sunday, two laughter and gong meditations workshops at the Sackler Gallery. One is at 11, the other is at 4. And they are, I think, two hours long. Uh, We're laughing part of the time. (laughs) And then we're... (laughs) Then we're doing gong tones for the remaining part. The laughter is a way of getting into deep relaxation. Also, we look at laughter as medicine. When you contact your authentic laughter, it's the certain internal medical benefits of laughter that we explore. Amazing. Um, So we're going to spend some time getting to know you, and I feel like we should uh, start from the beginning, wherever you may place the beginning in your musical journey. So maybe should we take it back to um, growing up in the US and your initial connections to music? Yes, it, um, I grew up in a household where my mother sang often and we attended Baptist church. So I heard gospel choirs in church and I sang with the youth choirs. Somewhere around the fourth grade I was given the opportunity to study the violin. And uh, shortly after that, a year or so, I started with the piano as well. So that was piano and violin at an early age. And singing with the church and the school choirs was part of my experience. Eventually, the school orchestras and eventually the trombone. So I was playing 
in the orchestra with the violin and the high school marching band with the trombone and in the high school choir singing uh, with the choir. So music was very strong in my life. I considered it an, um, a vehicle that could transform your state of consciousness very fast. And I appreciated that. What are some of your earliest memories of um, connecting to that different state of consciousness? I think in church, gospel choirs, a gospel singer would hit a high note and hold it, you know, and the church would go crazy. <laughs> and I would notice some consciousness shift when you hit a certain note. Uh, also, I remember waking up one morning and listening to the radio of the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I remember having a consciousness shift hearing that music. And it also happened with uh, a group called Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. You've ever heard of them? Never heard of Frankie. Well, that's when I noticed the power of music, even if the lyrics didn't make sense. Because <laughs> I noticed something about music could shift the um, state of conscious awareness. And listening to beautiful music at an early age, too, I would buy records and listen to them and like Earl Gardner and um, some of my favorite keyboard players where I would listen for hours and just transform my sense of where I was and where I am. And you mentioned learning instruments like violin and trombone. How influential would you say were those teachings and those explorations of instruments like that on what you've gone on to do later on? I think most of my models were the ones I would uh, emulate and imitate. And also I imitated rock and roll, the, the Louisiana rock and roll sound, the Fats Domino and uh, Isley Brothers. R&B at that time was, was uh, my side interest. When my mother purchased an upright piano and uh, put it in the house because she saw I was interested in the piano. And I would use it to do my lessons and also to uh, mimic rock and roll music and rhythm and blues. Then, and I got to high school, the choir, I mean, the choir and the orchestra was playing Broadway musicals. And, and I found that something about Broadway musicals expanded my sense of uh, what I wanted to hear and wanted to create. Then there was uh, Radio City Music Hall. Has anybody ever been to Radio City Music Hall? Yes. They had a fantastic uh, orchestra, a particular sound that my aunt took me one Christmas to hear the Philharmonic Orchestra. And that just opened my sense of just being in the presence of a live orchestra left a permanent mark on me. And I started reaching for more orchestral and symphonic expressions in my music after that. Mm. Then the most impacting experience was in 1974 while experimenting with marijuana and meditation and mind science. That had, um, I attracted a hearing experience that was not of this world. Uh, I couldn't record it or write it down, but it gave me a model, a vision of what I try to reach for on this side of the sound veil. Uh, I call the music vertical because it, it wasn't linear. I didn't hear it with these ears. A teacher told me that I felt it through my cerebral cortex as a vibration. When I did my research and discovered that there are spiritual traditions that honor this inner sound, they call it the cosmic sound current. Has anyone here ever heard of the sound current? Okay. I would imagine everyone here hears it, is hearing it now, but they don't know they're hearing it until you're very still. And that's one of the purposes of yoga, is to quiet the body, the mind, and the breath so that we suddenly notice this inner sound current. In uh, Sanskrit, it's called nadam. The Bible loosely calls it the word. In the beginning was the word. But this I heard it as a full-blown brass orchestra. And uh, the music activated a conscious awareness of eternity. 
and uh, allowed me to wrap my brain around the idea that everything is happening in present time. And also, the experience taught me that it's not proper to talk about it as though it happened, because there's no past tense. <laughs> so that music was so inspiring that I said, oh, this is the experience I'd like to share through my music, to stimulate consciousness, to be aware of eternal present time, and to feel like the whole universe is right here and now, that we're not separate from anything, person, place, or thing. And so I call that music vertical music, just like in music you have a chord where all the notes are simultaneous, as opposed to melody where the notes are linear. That I feel like uh, a music that's vertical allows the listener to stay in present time and feel the wholeness of the universe at every moment. So that, to answer your question, was one of the most impressive imprinting experiences that never happened. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was in the 70s. Was that whilst you were at university? No, that, that was and was not in 1974. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me a bit about um, how your time at university changed your kind of direction of your studies. Well, I went to Howard University, 1962 to 64. It was an impactful experience for one. It's the first time I've been immersed in a pretty much totally uh, a culture of total people of color, that uh, seeing people of color from around the world were different eye colors, different bone structures, different hair textures. That was one. Two is that I was exposed to uh, classical music, very strong classical music, the Washington Symphony under Howard Mitchell. The choir, the university choir sang with the uh, orchestra at times. And I was exposed to a deeper vocabulary of Negro spirituals. That's what they're called, Negro spirituals. I studied theory and composition at, under uh, black teachers, for lack of a more appropriate term. Uh, and I got to experiment in the practice rooms. My subject was piano was my major instrument, which is uh, an instrument that I love and that I haven't really shared it with the world until recently Warp Records has put the energy into having me produce my first solo piano album due to be released this fall. So I studied piano and theory and composition theory and composition allowed me to feel less like a trespasser in the world of music. And uh, after four years, when I uh, had felt that I achieved that, that experience of not feeling like a trespasser, that knowing how to navigate as a composer, that I moved to New York. What drew you to New York? Bill Cosby. <laughs> Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor were comedians and uh, I was doing comedy on the side, and their success kind of hinted to me that I could come to New York, try my hand at comedy, make a lot of money, get a great apartment, buy a grand piano, have it sit on a red rug, and then I could just write my music. That's what the plan was. And I came to New York, and I had mild success, led to comedy and to acting. And somewhere along the acting career, I felt like my inner sense of identity was not clear enough. And uh, I felt a little unstable in the mass media about what I would do. So I was attracted to meditation as a vehicle to get clearer about my core identity and what it is I would or would not want to do in the mass media. I came to New York and Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor were idols at that time. And I tried my hand at stand-up comedy and had mild success. But the success, mild success, was a springboard into my interest for meditation. And meditation opened up a wellspring of creative improvisation. 
And would you say the time doing stand-up comedy has influenced the way you perform your music today? One way to influence it is that doing stand-up comedy in the hootenannies and coffee shops of New York, I became uh, familiar, visually familiar, with an instrument called the auto harp. Because doing stand-up comedy in those coffee houses, you share the bill with... Uh, folk singers, and sometimes it was a bluegrass ensemble, and the bluegrass ensemble would have a guitar, bass player, drummer, and an auto harp. So doing comedy allowed me to have a visual connection to the instrument that I would later adopt as my experimental instrument. Also, comedy, uh, after a while, I felt like I was doing comedy that was not complimenting the human race. <laughs> so, uh, so it was polarizing comedy. That's comedy that polarizes so, or puts things down. So uh, after getting into meditation and consciousness, I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And uh, so comedy led to its own self-destruction until later on when I learned that I could get into enjoying people's laughter another way through laughter workshops instead of doing comedy. Although I'm not saying all comedy is negative, is that the comedy I was doing wasn't, um, I think, uplifting to the soul. I was getting laughter, but I didn't like, after a while, like the kind of laughter I was getting. So that period of being a stand-up comedy comedian, introduced me to the auto harp, uh, inspired me to take a deeper look into my own core intention for being, being anything. Eventually, doing laughter workshops gives me a sense of um, people's core giggle, core giggle. So like I can look at everyone here and imagine you laughing, laughing your guts out. I can see you laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Never saw you laugh this hard. And that kind of ability to stand up in front of an audience or even sit down and play music, it sort of relaxes me to know that I'm playing for people that I'm familiar with their laughter zone. So I can relax myself. And uh, since i am done many workshops where the workshops start out with people with straight faces, you know, how are you going to get me to laugh? I ain't going to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> then by the end of the workshop, everyone's up and dancing and hugging and having a good time. So I'm getting familiar with the idea that behind every straight, serious face, there's a core giggle ready to emerge if I set the right environment. Okay, let's talk more about your laughter workshops later on. But before we do, um, are there similar or other lessons that you took from your period as an actor? One of the most, I could call powerful, was I, as an actor, I came in touch with the, uh, I think it's the Stanislavski method. You've heard of Stanislavski? But there's a principle in acting called the what if. You ever heard of the what if? If an actor is said, I want you to walk across that room and come back, and the actor says, why? <laughs> why do you want me to do that? Though the actor has to create an intention, a reason, to walk across the room and come back so that it looks authentic. And the actor says, well, what if I thought I saw a rattlesnake over there and I wanted to go to check it to see if there was really a rattlesnake? So that gives the actor an inner justification for doing that and coming back. So then I've been able to use that for music, you know, with music. Uh, what if this audience was in deep transcendental meditation right now and I was going to play music that wouldn't disturb them or distract them, but support them? So the big what if has been uh, very useful in my life that I got from the acting, acting uh, years. What if 
And uh, during that period, you were in a movie called Putney Swope, which I'm sure people ask you about often. Um, tell me a bit about that experience and also what was it like to be part of a film that kind of became a cult film? It was uh, exciting because it was filmed, Putney Swope was filmed, the part that I was working on was filmed in Wall Street. So they rented buildings at night that was available. And uh, working with Robert Downey Jr., who uh, auditioned me for one role, but decided to use me for another. And so the, the feeling of being in an improvisatory kind of process. So I did, uh, only two nights required for me to do my role, and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, Putney Swope, I thought it was a Greek tragedy or something. But I just did my two parts, and then uh, left. And a couple of months later when the film came out and I saw the whole movie, and I thought, hmm, maybe I should get a handle on what I want to do in the mass media. And that, that movie influenced me to do some soul searching and to get a grasp on, you know, what am I doing with my life? You know, it's just, do I just want to become a great actor? and Or do I want to be concerned about what I, my energies do on the planet. So that film, acting, once again, stimulated my interest in spiritual, spiritual journey. The, the movie itself become a cult classic and people have recognized me from the film and I've, uh, I haven't seen many of the other actors go on to become or their, their actor careers haven't really developed, except the one person who played Arab in the movie. Did you begin to focus on music and expressing yourself through music after that? After meditation. Meditation surprised me. At, uh, for one thing, I thought the beautiful music that I would want to play would have to be read from somebody else's music score. And I discovered through meditation that the music I was waiting to hear is already inside of me. That if I do my scales and arpeggios on the piano and uh, read some inspirational writings and then sit and just get into a meditative zone, improvisation with uh, uh, a recorder going, tape recorder, just r streams of consciousness and then go back and listen and learn from myself to hear the music I was looking for was already inside of me. So you were making tapes and selling them around New York? I was making tapes, for one, to learn my vocabulary. I developed the vocabulary with the electric zither by recording for hours, then listening back and hearing things that I like, let's say uh, a certain little lick, they call that, a certain twist, then I would take that and I would repeat it 100 times as strictly as possible to get it into my subconscious mind. So I developed my vocabulary that way. That was the process, using a tape recorder. Then eventually, playing on the sidewalks of New York and Brooklyn, people would ask, hey, is that on tape? Can I buy that? And I said, nope, but it soon will be. And I would go home and uh, record it in a long playing cassette and I would dupe them one at a time, a 60-minute cassette, one at a time, till I got up enough money to actually have them mass-produced, two at a time, <laughs> <laughs> then a hundred at a time. Um, whilst you were out on the streets of New York, how was the city feeding into your creativity and what you were making? Well, I remember thinking to myself, uh, playing on the sidewalks in New York, I said, you know, everybody who's passing by here probably has one quarter they wouldn't mind giving up. <laughs> so playing on the sidewalks in New York, I discovered that uh, there was money to be made. If the music was meaningful, I discovered that by closing my eyes and being in a meditative state, I think I was providing people with an opportunity to, to calm down and chill. That was what happened with my music. 
Washington Square Park in New York City. That's where Brian connected with me. The Museum of Natural History, Central Park. These are different areas. I usually pick plazas and parks, something that had an aesthetic environmental setting to it. And just go into streams of consciousness with the music, just walls of sound, harmonics. And the music would provide an opportunity to drift away from the linear thinking process and just be probably a feeling of... of <laughs> let me see, there's a rattlesnake over there. <laughs> I saw my first rattlesnake about two summers ago in, in, in uh, Colorado. And until then, I thought rattlesnakes were a myth. But when everyone... Everyone, anyone here ever walk up on a rattlesnake? No. Wow, it's a trip. Because you see one, you think, it's real. <laughs> and it's there saying, yep, I'm real. <laughs> but the thing is, they don't look like menacing. They look like they're just passive. This is, you be cool, I'll be cool. And so uh, I was cool. <laughs> My first rattlesnake, I was so excited, I ran back indoors. There's a rattlesnake out there, there's a rattlesnake out there. And uh, I understand that young baby rattlesnakes are more dangerous than the adult ones, because the adult ones know how to ration their venom. They go, oh, he's about six feet long, he's six feet high. I'll just give him a little bit. <laughs> but the little baby one freak out. Ah! <laughs> they give you all the venom. <laughs> They don't know how to control their venom, so they're more toxic than the, than the adults. But uh, so my first rattlesnake, and uh, it's a trip. So where were we? Uh, before that, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were talking about being on the streets of New York. And on recording. the streets of New York. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there I learned, on a slow day, I would get $6.25 an hour on fast days. It depends on how much into the consciousness I was. If, my, if I was really into the consciousness, the music would be so transformative that people would honor it. And, uh, and I would get invitations to play at other events. And uh, eventually I said to him, you know, everyone here probably has $10 they wouldn't mind letting go of. So that's when I started crafting these cassette tapes. And sure, that boosted my income from $60 for a day to about $200 every other day. It was a, a mystical time, too, because playing in a mode, one mode for an hour or two or three, when I stopped playing, it's like the whole universe was saturated with this mode and I was in a trance state. And I also felt elated that the universe had directly compensated me. There was money in my... And uh, it's a great feeling, and also transformative, that I'd taken an ordinary cobblestone sidewalk and transformed it into uh, a cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> and also an opportunity to share my gift. Mm -hmm. And would people come and sit with you and engage in that way and watch? Yes. Uh, impressively, even if I were playing at rush hour, I would notice sometimes people in their business suits would come and sit in lotus position, uh, stand for hours. And I would notice uh, the principle of doing trance music, that if I did anything, like a string would break, or I would do anything to disrupt the trance, I would notice people would leave. You know, I would, they would re oh yeah. I got something else to do. So I learned how to observe trance states. That's one particular thing about doing trance music, is learning how to hold space for trance and what not to do to break the space. So people would come and stay for, depending on how much time they had, hang out for hours, because the timelessness zone was in effect. Once again, my experience in 1974 was informing the way that I was reaching for music, the music to produce in a listener a sense of timelessness, a sense of not being separate from the universe, of being full now. 
And were you surrounded by a community of other people who were also exploring similar things? And were you sharing like teachings and things that you found out by yourself? I can't can't say that. Can't say. I can say it now. <laughs> I can't say that I was surrounded by people who were doing the same thing. I was living in Park Slope, New York, and I was part of a coffee house community that would jam every night. But the jam was more of just free form, jam out, rock out. Because I was with electric zither and piano, but my direction was, I wasn't surrounded by people who were going this direction. It's, uh, I was aware of persons like Stephen Halpern and Yassos from the California area that were doing music that was getting called new age music. So I wasn't surrounded by artists who was doing what I was doing, nor did I need to. I felt like the experience I had had was an imprint, an initiation. And uh, my, I was initiated on the cellular level. So I didn't really need out of validation. I had my course of action was made clear to me and I was being sustained from within. It wasn't until uh, I started traveling and playing for meditation groups and new age centers, new age conferences, that I started to meet musicians and artists who had this similar interest of providing music that supported relaxation or guided imagery for healing, uh, music to calm the nervous system. From the streets of New York into being invited to New Age conferences and meditation centers, found my tribe of other artists who were doing similar things. Okay. Can we go back to when you first saw a zither and can no. you tell us what, what was a zither? <laughs> like, had you, had you heard about this before? Uh, no, I had not heard about the zither. Uh, I saw the auto harp in the Hootenannies, but I had never touched it. But I had uh, this intuitive hit. Boom, something's going on with that instrument I'm supposed to check out. I was playing Fender Rhodes piano with a jazz rock group for years in New York. And a Fender Rhodes, if you don't know what it is, it's a, it's a big cabinet and a keyboard. And you separate it to put it on a truck when you go to do a gig. After a while, you start questioning, is this the way I want to spend the rest of my life? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I said, uh, I would like a nice, lightweight, portable instrument. <laughs> so it was one day, uh, a Yamaha guitar and a Martin's fiberglass case I wasn't using much, and I needed some cash, and I needed it now, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the pawn shop in South Ozone Park, and as I walked, it was a midday, noontime, I walked in, no, no business was going on. As I walked in, I noticed this auto harp in the window. I said, oh, there's that instrument I saw in the Hootenannies, just sitting there. So I went in with my fiberglass case and my Yamaha six-string steel guitar, and I wanted money. I wanted it now, Martha. <laughs> 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 so the clerk, clerk said, well, I can give you $25 for that. And I said, oh, no. No, no, that's not going to work. And it's, I call it a voice, but a clear communication so clear it startled me. It's just, don't take money. Swap it for the instrument in the window. And have you ever heard a, heard a voice direct you like that? Mm. It's very startling. <laughs> it's almost like Matrix. Neo. <laughs> <laughs> so, the voice, so I was curious. Wow. And it, the voice had like love, like love of a great cosmic grandparent advising me. And, uh, and the idea that this voice was aware of me being here and that there was an instrument in the window, I said, I'm going to follow this voice and see where it goes. And so I made a deal with the clerk to swap it. He gave me the auto harp and I asked, could you throw in $5? So $5 in the auto harp, I left, not knowing what I was going to do with it. But when I got home, I said, why don't I just try tuning my favorite open tune 
tunings of the guitar into the auto harp. Do you know what an open tuning is? Okay. <laughs> okay, open tuning is when you tune the instrument so that when you strum it, it's all in tune with itself. It just makes a bit. I would explore different chords and uh, I'd explore my emotional landscape. I'd find a chord that would remind me of being in a desert or being on a mountaintop or that would remind me of all the civilizations in the universe dancing together. So I would design an open tuning on the auto harp and hang out with it. And at that time I was already into meditation. So I use it as a meditation support tool. And uh, during that period, if I was in Chinatown or in a hardware store, just browsing, and I thought, what if I played the instrument with that? The great what if. What if I played it with that? What if I did that? What if I electrified it? And uh, all these what ifs kept coming up and I led into this experimentation that allowed me to evolve the auto harp into what it is now, an electronic soundscape instrument. When I took the chord bars off the auto harp, the chord bars allow you to automatically chord the instrument. So when you remove the chord bars, it's no longer an auto harp, it's just an harp, a harp. Uh, in England, it's called a zither. So there I was with the zither, evolving it, my vocabulary and my technique for playing it. Sometimes I would say, uh, what if I played with that technique? I saw a hammer dulcimer artist playing with hammers one time. So, so the big what if led me on a journey of developing this approach to playing this musical instrument. Can we talk about when you gave yourself the artist name Laraji? That happened during 1979 in Harlem, New York, on 125th Street and Lenox Avenue. There was a bookstore, a spiritual bookstore, operated by a man named Kanya. He would allow the community to come in and read the books for free. Occasionally there were psychic fairs there. I would donate my music by playing outdoors in front of the shop. After one of these performances, two of the brothers approached me and says, we've been listening to your music for almost a year and the name Edward Larry Gordon doesn't seem to come across to us on the level that your music does. We've done some research We've looked into hieroglyphics, we've looked into Sanskrit, and we've come up with a name that we think you might like. That should be your new name. And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, well, if they tell me what the name is and I don't like it, it's gonna be a little embarrassing. So I said, why don't we meet in Central Park tomorrow and you can reveal the name to me. Now what they didn't know, because I told nobody, that I was already opening, looking for a, a name, a spiritual name. I knew that it was gonna be three syllables, and I knew that it had to do with the sun, because I had this new bonding with the sun. I never told anybody that. So we met in Central Park the next day, and they said, the name we came up with is Laraji. It's an evolution from Larry Gordon, Larry G, and it includes Ra, Egyptian name for sun god. Three syllables. And uh, roughly, it meant uh, honoring the divine aspect of the sun. And the J means the sun coming down into civilization, swinging back up, and blessing and serving and healing the uh, civilization. And I thought, how cool is that? Three syllables, the sun. The only thing I changed was add one more A so that there would be three A's in uppercase. We'd have three triangles. Little did I know at the time that Ra originally had two A's. Ra, the sun god of Egypt. So I accepted the name and uh, lived happily ever after. LAUGHTER <laughs> Um, from the music side of your journey, I guess an important moment was when you were, when Brian Eno came across you. Tell me about that day and did it feel significant at the time spiritually or did that not come up? 
Well, my mother and father discovered me first. Then <laughs> it was unique because I was playing in Central Park I'm Washington Square Park in my favorite area was a cobblestone circle with a tree in the middle it looked like a mandala and there were benches around so it was a perfect scene for people to sit and listen for hours and I was playing through a, I think a Panasonic tape recorder that acted as a speaker one particular evening after Counting my change, this married couple approached me and says, you know, we like your music. Have you ever heard of Frippinino? I said, Frippin' what? Frippinino. What's that? And he said, uh, Frippinino are uh, artists whose music you might enjoy checking out. And uh, I remember taking the suggestion, not knowing how I was going to ever research it, a month later, I'm playing in the same place, and uh, after finishing and counting my change, there was this paper in my, uh, a note in my zither case, saying, uh, dear kind sir, excuse this scraggly piece of paper. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, talking about joining me on a project, signed Brian Eno. I said, wow, what's going on here? So I called him up and said, yeah, uh, I'll come by and we can talk this over the very next day. I remember I went out and bought a bottle of juice and went up to his place and we talked about electronics, other subjects, and then we got around to the idea of ambient. The first time I had heard the word ambient and uh, he was trying his darndest to get me to understand <laughs> what ambient was. And uh, I assured him that if we went into the studio, something interesting would happen. And so we went into the studio not too long after that. And he sort of coached me in the direction of what he was looking for. And it was the first time in a highly professional studio where I wasn't using a lot of electronics that it was mostly based on very fine microphones that really boosted my appreciation for good microphones uh, with a little bit of electronics. So that album uh, put me on the uh, global map and that was for EG Records which is no longer functioning. Then it, I think Virgin Records now is releasing Day of Radiance, ambient number three. Um, when Brian was explaining ambient to you, what was he saying? I'm curious to hear what, what it was that he was saying. He was saying, listen! No, he wasn't saying that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was trying his best. It's music that's not the center of attention. You're not the main headline. It's music that's more of an environment within which you can think, feel your emotions, kind of backdrop, a field, an environment. And of course, I went into a studio uh, kind of responding to that. And uh, we recorded more than we needed so that he could edit out what came closest to what matched his vision. Uh, how do you feel about the term ambient now? I have a high respect for it because now that I reflect back on the 1974 experience that didn't happen, I considered that I was immersed in a cosmic ambient hearing experience and that ambient and environment that was all pervading ambient. I have a high respect for it from my perspective. I'm aware that right now the musical market is catering to a wide variety of, of ambient uh, directions, so what's being called ambient. I guess something called uh, noise, this can be called ambient, an environment. But I would call meditative contemplative ambient is the direction that I tend to lean toward. Mm -hmm. So would you say you consider yourself a part of that family and that community of ambient? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
But do you struggle with, 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 how does that sit with you? The term part is a, a part of, I think we're all whole beings, that um, each of us is carrying the whole enchilada. But um, until, what it is, Pandora? You're familiar with Pandora Radio? Spotify? Yeah. Spotify? Well, Pandora is another um, online option to listen to music. That allowed me to listen to the community of Simmer. That's why I hesitated, because I didn't really have a way of tuning into the community until Pandora came up. There's something called Hearts of Space. I don't know if that comes in Europe. Music of Hearts of Space. Okay, ambient radio, new age radio. So I'm aware of the community now more than I was before. I haven't shaken hands with them all, but I'm aware of the music and I enjoy it. I can put it on in my hotel room and listen. We're going to get some questions from you guys if you have any questions in a minute, so please be thinking. Uh, but before we do, um, I would love to hear more about your workshops, especially the laughter ones. Like, What can people expect from attending a workshop and... What do you hope people would get out of them? One thing is to uh, raise our laughter self-esteem because I would, I would imagine that many of us here have grown up and have had laughter fits at times when adults or people around us have told us, shh, don't do that. And uh, I would hope to release them from the spell of that to own your laughter, to feel your laughter, own it, love it, and to, with the laughter workshop, learn how to love it, and that's by learning to give new uh, intentions to our laughter. The laughter that opens the breath, the laughter that opens, that boosts the immune system, a laughter that gets endorphins and hormones to flow, a laughter that gives our abdominal organs a massage. So it's not just lunatic laughter. Um, that when you can get into whole body laughter and using your laughter as a medicine chest to access the health benefits of laughter, that you can laugh sooner and fuller with a self-esteem that this laughter is healthy, it's good for me, and I'm owning it. As one. Two is to honor laughter as a way of getting into deep relaxation, even getting to sleep, to using a full body laughter, I call it heavy laughter, learning how to work your whole energy system with laughter, is to take us into that place that yoga calls shavasana, or corpse pose. So there you either can go into deep relaxation, or you can use it to prepare yourself for meditation. So, I'd hope people to get their laughter self-esteem raised, also to respectability of laughter to take them into deep relaxation. Also, to put some time in on your laughter, to get the giggle on. And uh, you, you do release stress and tension, and you, that's one thing. that Perhaps you release stress and tension that you didn't know was there. Those are a few things I hope to get from it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of your other workshops, like the deep listening sessions. The deep listening experience is another workshop is for people to come in, lie down with blindfolds on. And if you don't have a blindfold, you can use your neighbor's sock or something. You get uh, these in yoga studios or fitness centers where people from 60, 30, or 100 people come in and lie down and for about an hour and a half, two hours. And these, mostly I'm working more and more with a partner that we use gong, Tibetan bowls, chimes, electric zither, synthesizer, voice. And we open them up with chanting, call and response chanting. Usually the chanting is either familiar or non-traditional chanting or something called bija mantras. They are to stimulate the seven energy centers. So once we get the uh, participants into a relaxed place, then we just channel sound, a soundscape to relax, to celebrate, to journey. The deep listening means we do also leave silence so that we can frame sound in silence, so you can listen softly and listen gently.
Amazing. Laraji, thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Does anyone have a question? Yeah. Uh, what's the most reasonable? It, is it, do you mean in terms of price? Okay. Reasonably priced microphone re most for recording at home. Microphone? Well, now reasonably depends on how well you respect what it is you have to give to the world. I find Sennheiser's work, a Shure Beta, Shure FM 58 Beta for vocal. Mm, I think condenser microphones. I'd say between 150 and 300 dollars is you could play around in that area. If someone tries to sell you a 15 dollar microphone, I don't know. But I, I've noticed that there is a correlation between the price of a microphone and the quality. But um, and if I don't understand it, I can go into a place like B&H or Sam Ash and ask for professional, more professional than myself. But um, I do research online too. But I've found that road, road microphones, they're not so reasonable. They're up around six or seven hundred dollars. Sennheiser. But uh, if you get a multi-purpose microphone, maybe with a large diaphragm, if you don't have heavy traffic outside your house, Yes, but uh, like you said, how much value you put on what it is you want to share with the world, then uh, I find that microphones are a good place to put your money. Thanks. We had another question at the front. Uh, do you have a daily spiritual practice that you follow? Or, uh, and also, how did you come across about laughter as a spiritual practice? Because that's something I've never heard before, I've heard breath work and sound baths and meditation and um, kundalini yoga, but I've never heard of laughter. So how did you like come across that and bring it sort of connected with the spiritual practice? Or? The laughter practice came inspired by a book that was released through the people that followed Bhagwan Rajneesh, Sri Rajneesh and a book called The Orange Book of Meditations. And I remember reading that book and came to the page that suggested laughter meditation. Up to that point, I'd, I had been doing stand-up comedy, but I never made the connection between laughter and meditation. And the suggestion was that before getting out of bed in the morning, keep your eyes closed, do some stretches, and laugh for 15 minutes. And so I did that. and. Uh, I was impressed, the idea of laughing while lying down. And sometimes it took me five minutes to find my authentic laughter. And even if I had faked the whole 15 minutes, it took away the resistance to more natural and spontaneous laughter in, in the day. And eventually, I liked it so much that I formed a workshop out of it. So that was laughter meditation. And I learned how to let that heavy laughter experience go into a meditation zone. Now, my daily practice at the beginning was strict. It was from 12 o'clock at night to 5 in the morning to sit. Now, first, I would relax the breath by seven breaths in and seven breaths out. I also learned how to sit in a chair without fidgeting and stay focused on a point on the wall. And I discovered to my amazement, somewhere after 21 minutes, a different version of the universe slips into view, slips into consciousness. It's just like magic. That if I learn how to sit still and keep the focus, well, it's swallow saliva, blink if I have to, but resist the urge to fidget. It took a little while to learn how to sit still for 21 minutes. But just like clockwork, after about 20 or 21 minutes, the mind would somehow give way and allow me to observe a different version of present time. Another discipline was uh, going into meditation to sit in a chair, breathe, and then mentally take off every title, name, and classification that was used to refer to me. Like, a, I'm not Negro, I'm not a musician, I'm not a husband, I'm not a son, I'm not a New Yorker. 
I'm not going to pay my rent. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would take off every title and sit with what's left. And what was left was this unrushed, invisible, timeless, weightless, conscious being. And the realization that doubt, anger, fear, and all those emotions belonged to the titles. They didn't belong to me. And that I could sit in the meditative state. Usually that time I was sitting in an easy chair for hours with no rush to go anywhere because I wasn't wearing those titles. Taking the titles off and relaxing the breath and learning how to stay focused I think learning how to stay focused allowed me to observe the inner teachings that come in meditation. That's one of the things about meditation, inner teachings come. It's not just sit there, do nothing. You, you're, you're listening, you're watching, you're observing, and a vibratory wash of cosmic presence can come through and talk through you in a way that linear language cannot. And that's what, that's the kicker. And you say, hey, the universe is aware of my presence. And that is a big uplift. That can pull you out of, I can pull me out of uh, any uh, sense of separation from the universe. Thanks. I think we had one more question. Was it you? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any uh, like books you would recommend? You ever read mad comic books? No, no. It's uh, <laughs> Be Here Now was an impressive book. Think on These Things by Krishnamurti is another one. Music of Life by uh, Hazrat Inyad Khan, if you're a musician. Uh, if you're into scientific way of approaching, I found that mind science books of uh, by. Uh, um, Thomas Troward, Judge Thomas Troward. That not a very stiff reading, but if you like the science, gut science of mind science of what the mind can conceive, we can achieve. And if you learn how to shift your mind into a new way of thinking, you can change your life. You can change what you attract into your life. And uh, there was a period when I was experimenting with this. And I could feel this cloud, this subtle cloud, leave my life. The cloud that... Has anybody here ever been black? Well... <laughs> in the United States, <laughs> there's a subtle cloud that, you know, from the slave period that just follows you. And uh, sometimes you're aware of it. But mind science dissolved it. And uh, it's like a different kind of sunshine evolved out of learning the, how to use your mind to change your life that you can think new thoughts, and you learn how to instill new thoughts. You work in front of a mirror, you get a positive thought, and you repeat it to yourself, making eye contact with yourself in the mirror, or blocking your ears so that you can hear your voice with bone-conducted sound. What you're overturning is a culture of belief. You've grown up with a certain belief, and it'll say, are you nuts? Stop that. But you learn how to overturn it, if you're hanging out with a mind science or a positive thinking community that can support you in doing this, it's a radical, a way how to, how to radically shift your way of thinking if you're not really happy about the lot that you think you've been given in life. So what that was to answer your question books. about books. mad comic books, <laughs> <laughs> that the books that I read, the mind science book, um, of course, I read through the Bible about three times, and I considered that reading spiritual books is a way of sharpening your spiritual radar, your spiritual intuition. And uh, that, I think, is important, sharpening your spiritual intuition so that your inner self can take over and guide you. Any other books? I'm sure there are other books that just don't... Emerald Tablets, these are esoteric books. Um... Be Here Now was one of the uh, impressive book. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, By Baba Ramdas? Yeah. That was impressive, the way that it was constructed. It's a way of being present here now. And I'd say look into the idea of listening to Nadam, inner Nadam, inner sound current. It's eternal. It has no ending or beginning. So it's the perfect object for contemplating if you want to lift your sense of self out of the personal history self 
and align with your universal self. Um, the universal self is eternal. And of course, you try to link with your eternal self by thinking it. The thoughts are temporary. The thinking mind is not a big help. It's by tuning into the sound and becoming immersed in this inner sound current, which is everywhere and which doesn't require these ears because people who are diagnosed as clinically deaf can still participate in this inner experience. You might even want to call it hearing, but feeling this vibration which can translate into sound. Yes? How do you differentiate between your intuition, that feeling that just, that just comes up, that you should do something, like you said, you should be experimenting with that instrument, and differentiate that between like the thoughts, like that just inner dialogue that just comes up? How to differentiate between your inner dialogue and... So like the thinking mind and the think intuition. And intuition. Mm -hmm. I've practiced. I practiced uh, during the years when I was playing music on the sidewalks in New York. I would go to, well, I would ask, he says, where should I go play music? I would just ask that question. And uh, just listen for what you think is hearing. And you know, I would get something like, get on the train and go to 59th Street. And I think I heard that. I would just follow it. And then, what should I do now? Just, Go to the park and sit down and play. And I just follow it, just see what happens. And I do this enough time to learn how to trust what would happen. Uh, a classical time is when I was supposed to be helping somebody set up their law for a party. And uh, the voice said, get your instrument and go to Central Park, to the zoo, <laughs> and play. And I said, whoa. And so, uh, I got my instrument and I was leaving my residence and the person I was supposed to be helping says, where are you going? We got a party to prepare for. I said, I just got a message. <laughs> Go play in the park. <laughs> and so uh, I went to Central Park, sat where I thought the voice wanted me and I played. It was early in the morning and there weren't many passerbys, but I noticed these two feet were still there for about a half an hour. And so I said to myself, wow, I think I've been misled. But after I stopped playing, one of the feet came over to me, it was a lady, and she says, you're psychic, aren't you? And she said, this is my teacher. He's from Connecticut. He's producing his work of spoken material, and we're looking for a musician just like you. And they hired me on the spot to come up to Connecticut later on that week to play music for a series of his spiritual recordings. So that proved my point, that I had followed the voice. So experimenting with the voice. Of course, I went back to the loft, and uh, my partner says, where have you been? I said, I followed the voice. <laughs> and he said, don't give me any of your muckamuck. And he shoved me across the loft. And I went and got my things and left and never returned. And that's some kind of the price you have to pay when following that inner voice. There'll come a time when you say, if I follow the voice now, it's gonna create some serious waves. And you decide, the door opens, should I go through it now or postpone it? The door might not open again for you in a convenient time. So that taught me to adjust my life, to take responsibility for the way I live my life and not put myself in social obligations that would be challenged by the way I live my life. So I did it enough times to learn how to feel that voice, the voice in the pawn shop that uh, said, follow. It was such a clear and loving voice. That's one thing, loving. It sounds like it's a benevolent voice. It's not joking around with you. If you do it enough time, you start to recognize the sensation that up, Sometimes I ignore the voice. Once I ignored it and had a car accident. But I learned how to feel it, and when it comes up, oh, there it is. If you want to make this your spiritual journey, you know, I consider it inner radar. I don't know if I would put a blindfold and run through the city of New York. Which way should I go now? <laughs> But 
that experiment. A safe place to experiment is go to your favorite park, stand at the entrance, hmm, which way should I walk? This is go down 50 feet and sit on a bench. Just follow what you think you heard. Now the park is a safe place to experiment with what you think you heard. And then says, well, I'm sitting here for 15 minutes, what should I do now? Uh, get up and look, feed some of the ducks. Just play with what you think you heard. Learn how to listen to the edge of your imagination in a safe environment. And then, at some point, you'll take the show on the road. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, everyone, for your questions, and thank you for coming. Orange is a transformative color, and... Uh, I started wearing it after that 1974 experience that I didn't realize was an initiation. Someone says, you've been initiated inwardly, and it's time to bring that initiation to the surface. Wear the color orange. It's a representative of sunset on the old way of knowing yourself and sunrise on the new way of knowing yourself.